And I remember having this moment of questioning that said, I have to raise this girl to womanhood. It's not just that I'm raising a child. Like, I'm, I'm raising a girl to womanhood. What do I think that should look like? Who do I want her to become? What kind of, like, and people were giving me prepackaged answers, like, this is a vision of biblical womanhood, or you should train your daughters this way. And so I was standing there needing to take responsibility for her life and ended up taking responsibility for my own life. Because what I understood and realized in that moment is we all turn into our mothers. So who I wanted my daughter to be was who I needed to be. And I had to ask, what would a flourishing, well-lived life look like? And if I wanted my daughter to have that life, I had to pursue it first. And that brought questions to the surface about, well, who am I? What am I trying to do with my life? What are the goals I should have? What are the gifts that I have that are lying dormant? And out of that kind of really an existential crisis, that came through parenting, that came through my lived context with my family, I started writing um, as an act of obedience and stewardship to the gifts that God had placed in my life. And not surprisingly, the things I began writing about were the questions that I had, the questions that I needed answers for. And I believed that if I was asking these questions and I hadn't found my way through that there were probably a whole lot of other people who are asking the same questions. And as I started watching and I started listening to people, I would hear, especially women, say things like, this feels unlivable. Okay, the paradigm or the categories I've been given about um, who I am as a woman, it, it, it feels so hard, but... I want to do what the Bible says. So I'm just going to buck up and do what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why it's this way, but it feels like it's hard, but I just need to do it. I saw other women saying, you know what, I'm done with this. But because it had been linked to their faith, to get out of the pressure that they were feeling about their gender identity, they had to throw off their faith because there was no uncoupling it. It had been brought to them, the kinds of categories and assumptions and expectations for their gender identity had been given to them in the language of, this is biblical, this is essential, this is core to your, your Christian walk. Even some women were being discipled to say, to be a mature follower of Christ means to adopt these certain patterns of womanhood. Right. So this is what I remember a conversation I had with a man who was involved in the gender conversations and discipleship. And I asked him, I said, so who do you say a woman should model herself after? If we're looking at the scripture, you know, like and he was talking about Christ as a model for men. I said, well, who's a model for women? And he says, well, I think Sarah is a model for women. And I remember having this sinking feeling. You've just told me that Jesus Christ is not who I am being conformed to. You've just told me that I am to be conformed to the image of another woman. And I think that was the tension in the discipleship that I had received as a young woman that drove me back to the questions of identity and calling as an image bearer of God. 
because I knew that I was destined to be made like Christ, but I didn't have a process that got me there. The, the language and categories that were be, being delivered to me as a female follower of Christ were very different. And so out of that process of writing um, came the book Made for More, which was basically my attempt to lay a solid foundation for my identity as a person, for my sanctification as a follower of Jesus Christ in an embodied womanhood. So it was to recover those kind of fundamental core principles about our humanity, not just our gendered humanity, but about our basic call as human beings that is shared by both men and women. And so as I did that, as I went back to the scripture and started at the beginning, I came to it with the assumption, um, this doesn't, what I've been given does not feel and is painful. And yet, I know the scripture is life and health and flourishing. I believe that what Jesus has to offer through the gospel is abundant life. I believe that God's revelation is the path to my greatest flourishing. So what am I missing? Where is the disconnect? What is not in the conversation that needs to be in the conversation? Um, what needs to be taken out of it? And so I came back to this not, I really tried to exit the conversation as it had been presented. And like Brandon talked about, you've got these pol polarization of here's the conservative answer, here's the prog progressive answer to these questions. And what I realized is that both conservative and progressive approaches to this are shaped by the same social ethos. So essentially, while it looks like conservatives and progressives are coming to different conclusions, they are actually thinking in the same way, the same shapes, the same underlying assumptions about life, the same underlying assumptions about individualism, about consumption and consumerism. So what you see in a conservative answer to these questions and progressive answers to these questions are more likely Western categories of thought on both sides. And so what I came to is what if we're asking all the wrong questions? What if our paradigms and our way of thinking is flawed? Not just the answers that we come to, but what if we don't even have the right resources and the shape to even know how to read what the scripture is presenting us with? And one of the ways, um, so with my kids, I have played this game with them since they were little. Um, to give you an example of what I mean when I say we are not thinking the way the scripture thinks or our questions, we're coming to the, the scripture. One of the things I've done with my kids, and it's just fun, and now they're old enough, it's just a joke. Um, you know how when they're little and it's, Mommy, I have a question. Mommy, I have a question. Mommy, I have a question. So I started doing this. One of them would come to me, Mommy, I have a question. And I would say, good, I have an answer. Let's hope they match. And they would say, oh, no, no, Mommy, I have a question. I said, I know, I have an answer. My answer is green. Now, what's your question? We're coming to the Bible saying, hey, I have a question. And the Bible's like, yeah, let me tell you this other thing. And we're like, no, no, that's not the question I have. And the Bible's like, I know. Here's what we need to talk about first. And it's just a playful thing I do with my kids, but I think it's this disconnect between we are expecting the Bible 
to be available to answer the pressing questions that we have created. When what we must do is submit ourselves to the way the Bible is thinking, okay? And the Bible is thinking in categories and in forms that we don't think in. And, and so when we come across um, a passage like Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this age or this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I think a lot of us have been discipled to read that this way. Um, the Bible teaches certain things, and the world teaches certain things, and you need to make sure you pick what the Bible teaches about that particular issue, right? So it's something like this. Um, the Bible says, do not have sex outside of marriage. Society says it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. To be a biblical person, you need to do what the Bible says, don't have sex outside of marriage. And, and that's what we tend to think of as adjusting our behavior and habits to the Bible, right? So we've got this dichotomy. And to be transformed in the renewing of our minds means to reject the things the world does and do the things that the Bible says to do. And that's true, but it's actually a shortcut. And that shortcut in the long run is going to hurt us. Because the difference about what the Bible is teaching and what, the, what society is teaching is not just about where you end up. It's why and how you get there, right? So the process of coming to the application that you should not have sex outside of marriage is rooted in deeper principles about faithfulness and wholeness and covenant. And it is those principles that are at odds with our society. The reason our society comes to the conclusion that it's fine to act in certain ways sexually has more to do with their flawed categories of individualism and consumption and what you can get away with in terms of your relationship to other people. The Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The Bible calls us to live in ways that are whole and pure. And by pure, I don't just mean untainted, I mean holistic and the same. So that if we claim to serve a faithful God who loves and sacrifices for each other, for other people, then we as his image bearers should be faithful people who love and sacrifice even our desires to protect other people. So when it comes to the question of, of sexuality outside of marriage is what gives safety and faithfulness to the act of sexuality. Now, I give you that example because you could never have sex outside of marriage and still be a completely faithless person. You could never have sex outside of marriage and be a completely impure person. Just because you have kept the law does not mean you are thinking in ways that are biblical. It does not mean that your life is reflecting the deeper logic of Scripture moving through the world. So I think when we come to this question of gender, and I, and I know I'm kind of leading up a lot, I, I need to establish that when we come to the question with the scripture, we must submit ourselves to new categories. Well, they're not actually new. They're actually very old categories. 
They're categories that are inherent and assumed in the scripture that we just have lost sight of. And we need to learn to think about what the Bible is actually teaching us about these questions and not just bring our first world problems to them looking for immediate and quick answers. And so, as Brandon said, when we come to questions of gender and biological sex, we feel the pressing need of an answer for what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman in this context? Can women do this? Should men do this? Who should be the primary breadwinner? Um, what's a woman's role in the home, in the marketplace? Those are the questions we're looking for answers to. And the Bible is saying, let's back up. I've got an answer. It's green. And so as we come today, one of the ways I want to offer you to think about these questions is the category of paradox. And if you can grasp this as a thought paradigm and put this in your toolbox and understand the kinds of inherent paradoxes that are built into our humanity and thus into our gender, it's going to help you when you approach passages that are stickier, right? So when you approach those texts that seem confusing or you're not sure exactly how to apply them because you've got all of this other thought behind it, those passages are either going to open themselves up or you're going to see them in a slightly different way because you've done this other work first. So the, the thing we're going to spend the day looking at is this category of paradox. And in this session, we're going to look at the underlying paradoxes that are inherent in our humanity and thus our gender. And in the second session, we're going to look about at how those paradoxes work out in practice, what it would look like to honor the paradoxes in our actual lived practice as a community. But first, let's just define paradox. I'm going to give you some visual paradoxes here. You've probably seen these things floating around on Facebook, right? Your great aunt probably shares them. <laughs> this is the neatest thing I've ever seen. So let's go back to the other one. So is this a duck or a rabbit? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes. Okay, let's go to the next one. Is this two faces or a goblet? So when we talk about, these are visual paradoxes. There are um, ideological paradoxes or concept paradoxes. But, but at root, a paradox um, is two things that are simultaneously true, even though your brain is telling them they can't both be true at the same time, right? Um, any kind of physicist, physicist, math people here? Like it's light waves. Yes, light as wave and particle. Schrodinger's cat, is cat dead? Is it not dead? It has to be both at the same time. It's a paradox. Go Google it. So a paradox is two realities that you must embrace despite the fact that your brain is telling them, telling you that they cannot both exist simultaneously. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary talks about paradoxes, ideas that are at logical variance with one another. Um, but what is key to paradox is that you must have both to understand the whole. 
And what our brains are trying to do is, you know, our brain is classifying and it's trying to bring order to the world around us. It's trying to, um, to make sense of what we're experiencing. And so our brain, instead of holding to both, wants to create these into opposite ideas, that they are against each other. That's not what a paradox is. Let me give you an example. Uh, what is the opposite of justice? Okay, Injustice. That's an opposite. Justice and injustice are opposites. Justice and mercy are not opposites. They are a paradox. Both are essential for a flourishing society, but they are not opposites. What is the opposite of love? Hate. The opposite of love is hate. Truth is not the opposite of love. Truth and love, you know, Paul has that famous coupling. Truth and love are a paradox that in our moment in time often feel like they're at logical variance to one another. I, I have people ask this question, how can I be loving and tell someone the truth at the same time? And I say, do it. You must do both. That is the paradox. That's the kind of category that the scripture is operating in. And again, we want to kind of separate these things so we can handle them. But the point of paradox and the reason that the scripture uses paradox is because it is calling us to something more transcendent than the way we typically move through the world. The, one of the goals of paradox um, in the scripture, it, it's, it can be linked to the idea of mystery. Um, if you are familiar with um, Jen Pollock Michelle, she's a writer, she has a book out just this last year called Surprised by Paradox, where she handles this concept of paradox in the Christian life. And it's a very good book, and I would recommend it. And in that book, she, she really ties it to this question of mystery that we find in the scripture. So things like Paul saying, now we see through a glass darkly. Like there, there's things our brain cannot fully conceptualize. Um, or behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, what's fascinating is in Ephesians, when speaking about our gendered lives, Paul relates it to Christ and his church, and he calls it a mystery. Now, in using the language of mystery, he is not saying, just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, who can know? He's calling us in for a closer look. He's calling us to curiosity. He's calling us to humility. And see, the problem is when we approach paradox, we tend to want to, like I said earlier, break it apart, make it binary, make it opposites, and then um, either elevate one or the other. And you know this is the case in conversations about gender. Because what do we call men and women? What do we call male and female? We call them opposite sex. Right? But the reality is, that men and women are a paradox. How can you have humanity represented in a female form and humanity represented in a male form? That's the paradox of gender. And we tend to approach it in a binary, and I wanna be careful with this language because you will hear kind of the, the rejection of the binary in more progressive spaces and conservatives will hold very, no, there's a binary. <laughs> what I mean by binary is this. You've got two truths, okay? 
you cannot set them in opposition to each other. You also cannot lose either one of them. So the other approach that people will take to paradox is they will try to set them in opposition or they will deny that the paradox even exists. Like just deny it entirely and that'll take care of things, right? So you hear things like human beings are not gendered or gender is a social construct entirely. We'll, we'll talk about the difference between gender and biological sex, um, hopefully. But, but, what I, <laughs> but what I need you to understand at this moment is both of those responses, both the conservative and the progressive response are attempting to get rid of the paradox, okay? And that's what I mean when I say in Western thought, we have a hard time grappling with the way the Bible thinks about these questions. Because we are products of the Enlightenment. And we have classified things in the natural world since Carl Linnaeus first started making lists of animals and plants. And it is only logical that this, many hundred years later, we would be then now classifying ourselves, right? So we are enamored with classification. And what the scripture is saying to us is, there is a mystery in play here, and you must honor the mystery. It doesn't mean that you don't investigate it. In fact, the mystery should really pique your curiosity, and you should be drawn into it further. The way that when Moses is standing in front of the burning bush, and it's not consumed, which is a paradox, how does he respond? He moves in for a closer look, and he is curious. It's the same response we have when we see a magic act, and our brain tells us that is impossible. There is no way that can happen. And so what do we do? We say, show it to me again. I want to see that. And we want to know. And so when we come to this category with gender, we come humbled, and we come curious. And we come relying on the scriptures and the categories that it gives us. So how does the scripture think about being male and female? How does it think about being human beings? I'm going to give you five paradoxes that we are going to use later, but I'm going to get them established in this session. Now, the, the classic text that we would use in this space as we're asking questions about anthropology, about how God made us to be, would be Genesis um, 1, 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, where it gives us more detail on the creation of male and female. Um, I'm going to assume your knowledge of those texts because you're here on a Saturday morning. If I am not tracking with you, or if you have questions later, or you're not sure where I, I see a paradox playing out in the text, feel free to come and clarify that later. First, the first paradox that we see, um, though, in the text, especially in Genesis 1, 26, and 28, um, is that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And the first paradox we have that throws right in our face is the fact that we are created beings 
in the likeness of the divine. We are created beings given rule over the creation, and yet we are still part of the creation. Do you see that? Do you see how that just doesn't make any sense? Either we're created, right? Either we are part of the creation and our lives are governed by all the rules that govern the rest of the creation, or we're over the creation and we're not governed by those rules. And this comes into play in both our understanding of what our vocation and calling is as human beings and as male human beings and female human beings, but it also comes into play in understanding natural law, okay? What part of us is just like the rest of creation? What part of our male and femaleness is just like the maleness and the femaleness of the birds? What part of our maleness and femaleness is just like these established categories that, that function in plant life? And what part of our maleness and femaleness actually rules over that? Because we are male and female in the image of God, which is different than being a male animal or a female animal. And so this is a tension because the cultural error that we, we will run to you will hear progressives say, essentially, our gender and our bodies are completely mutable. That we can make them what we want them to be. That they, our identities are chosen and constructed and made. And what that cultural error does is it rejects the truth that we are not God. That our bodies and our biological sex have been created and given to by a creator that we submit to. At the same time, however, you will hear people talk about our maleness and femaleness as if we were just animals, right? And we just function as the rest of creation. That our biological sex then becomes the greatest source of our identity and the way we move through the world and that our purpose, meaning, and sense of self emerge from that physicality, and it's almost a reduction of the image of God in us. Because at the end of the day, I have more in common with a human male than I do with a female cat. I share more with my brothers who are made in the image of God, even though we are different genders, than I share with a female cat. So what we must do to hold this paradox in tension is to accept both. As part of creation, we receive our biological sex from God, and yet our biological sex is not the basis of our core identity. Our core identity is that we are image bearers who rule over the creation in God's stead. Our maleness and females is essential to that vocation. You do not rule and reign you do not bring forth life without giving attention to your male and femaleness. And yet, our biological sex serves us, right? It is given to us as a gifting and an embodiment to accomplish our calling as image bearers. And that's a paradox that if we were just looking to answer the question, and you can see progressives and conservatives will come to this text and they're looking for different answers and they will find the answer they want. But neither answer is what the Bible is teaching because the Bible is teaching this tension 
of being the creature submitted to the creator, also ruling over the creation. The second paradox is that as human beings, as men and women, we are both material, physical, embodied people, but we also are immaterial. We have souls, spirits, whatever. Let's not get into the dualism kind of question. Let's, let's just say there's a material and an immaterial part of us. And we see this in the creation of the man in Genesis 2, particularly when God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath is also the, the spirit, okay? It's the same word. And so it's this sense that God is in doing the physical earth with his divine life. And so as that happens, as the, phys- as the material and the immaterial join, the man becomes a living soul, becomes a living being. So as we are navigating our gender and questions of biological sex, we must both hold that it is a real physical thing. But there is also part of us that is immaterial, right? And so here's how folks will err in trying to handle that paradox. Materialists, especially people formed in the modern West, um, will understand that their bo- they will deny the Imago Dei, really, that your body is the only real true thing about you, okay? Um, and I think you see some of this in the hopelessness among um, kind of atheistic or, or kind of uh, scientism, right? So the material world is the only thing that's real. And there's a hopelessness to that. And you see it in their gender relationships because things very quickly reduce to how can I get my DNA passed along to the next generation? There is an emphasis on sexuality, not in... Um, not in the terms of like progressive sexuality, but just this very base that is a survival of the fittest mentality. And that the goal of male and female interaction is to make sure your genetic information gets passed along. Um, Again, that is a denial of the divine in us. And so that as men and women are relating to each other, yes, we are relating to each other in our physical bodies and we must never diminish that but we are also relating to each other as eternal beings. We are relating to each other as brothers and sisters of our Father, our Creator God who made us as siblings too. So we're not just looking at each other as potential sex partners. Okay, And I think on the other side, people who deny embodiment, who don't take it into account serious enough, gender necessarily becomes a question of, well, what does it feel like to be a woman? What does it feel like to be a man? What are those abstract, esoteric characteristics that we can attach to maleness and femaleness because we've denied the body, right? The best way to know what it means to be a man and a woman is to pay attention to your body and to say, this is the body that God has given me. It's fascinating to me because I never struggled with my womanhood or my femaleness until I encountered people telling me that my femaleness was not defined by my body, 
but it was defined by these esoteric categories that I could never attain. Obviously, by this point, you've noticed that I talk a lot, I'm curious, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Sociologically, those are not categories that are associated with femininity. I never struggled with being a woman and being that until someone told me those are not things a woman is. And that was a denial of my body. And I'm like, well, this woman is, <laughs> right? And I didn't pick this. I didn't pick my body. I didn't pick my personality. I didn't pick my gifting. And so if you have a problem with that, you need to talk to my creator because we've been dealing with it for several years now. And so the paradox we must embrace is that men and women are embodied creatures who experience gendered life in specific cultural moments. And yet we are more than our biological sex. We cannot just be reduced to our bodies, but our bodies are important. And our sense of femaleness and maleness cannot be detached from our bodies. Okay, we cannot create these Gnostic categories that we then must attain to. We must look for a holistic sense of self that embraces both the material and the immaterial part of us. The next category that we see, and we've already kind of alluded to this, is that God created human beings the same but different. That he created in his own image male and female. And so while these are not oppositional categories, you look around this room, we are all human beings, but there are two types of human beings, right? There are those of us who are living out the human experience in female bodies, and there are those of us who are living out the human experience in male bodies. The difference of this paradox, how we see errors in it, is some people will approach that, again, wanting to uncouple the paradox because it's too difficult and our minds can't grapple with it, so we want to deny the paradox entirely. And we will say, actually, the differences between men and women are primarily the result of social conditioning, right? So let's just get rid of the paradox. Men and women aren't different. We just need to treat everyone the same. And it's really a case of gender blindness. Now, if you are aware of any of the conversations around um, race relations, you may know the category of color blindness, where people say, well, I just don't see color. I'm like, well, you should get those glasses that you see going around on the memes. On the, have you ever seen those people who are colorblind can get these glasses? So color blindness does not erase the reality that God has given us different races and ethnicities and that we as a society have interacted differently with the different ethnicities. And the same with gender blindness. It is not healthy. It is not good for women to look at them as if they were men. You are doing women no favors to treat them like men. And I think the problem is in our society, well-meaning people will say, well, I don't see gender. I just treat men and women alike. And I say, I don't want you to treat me alike. I want you to honor the female that God has given me and I want you to see that and I want you to value it and the fact that we don't see gender 
doesn't mean that our world is not constructed in ways that harm the different genders. And so it doesn't take away the tension or the pain if we just pretend like it's not there. On the other hand, another way that people try to reconcile this paradox is, again, to set it at opposition, to say men and women are different, and in fact, they are best understood by their differences. They are opposites, and their differences are the primary lens to how we should relate to each other. And so that is a rejection of our common sameness as image bearers. Um, Dorothy Sayers is like my patron saint, even though I'm an evangelical and I know we're not supposed to have patron saints. But if you can get your hands on some essays that she's written, Are Women Human and The Human Not Quite Human, um, these are fantastic essays in which she is grappling with the ways the world relates to our biological sex and the ways those are flawed. She was part of the Inkling group, friends with C.S. Lewis, um, Tolkien, all that. And she talks about the fact that um, we must honor men and women as women and as men. And, and someone asked her, <laughs> but we also must honor them as human beings. And someone asked her, because she was also a mystery writer, and she would, it, Lord Peter Whimsey mystery series, no PBS people here. <laughs> okay, maybe you're not my people. <laughs> so somebody was complimenting her on her ability. This man was complimenting her on her ability to write mystery stories. And, and he said, oh, your dialogue is so good when you have these men talking to each other. How do you know how to write the way men talk to each other because you're a woman? And she said, I just wrote the way human beings talk to each other. And this man had come assuming that there was something vastly and profoundly different, that a woman would not be able to write a male character because she would never be able to know what was inside his head. So one of the quotes she has, if you could get it up here, she is appealing to the fact that men and women must be understood in this paradox of both human and gendered. So they must be understood as male and human, and women must be understood as female and human. And we must keep both of those paradoxes. She says, the fundamental thing is that women are more like men than anything else in the world. They are human beings. This is the Latin. Vir is male and femina is female, but homo is male and female. This is the equality claimed and the fact that is persistently evaded and denied. Man is always dealt with as both homo and vir, both human and male, but woman only as femina. This is her frustration as she lived back in the 20s and 30s. So what happens if you do not hold to both of these paradoxes is maleness and humanness come together as a package. And femaleness is whatever is not male. But do you see the danger of that? Because how do you know what part of male behavior is human behavior and is shared and what part is distinct to maleness? And so what a lot of women are wrestling under in this situation is we have failed to hold the paradox when we speak about them. We have failed to say a woman's representation in the world is a representation of humanity as much as a male's representation 
in the world is representation of maleness and humanity together. So that's the paradox. Both men and women are fully formed humans made in the image of God, called to display his glory, and yet they embody significant differences for God's purposes. Paradox teaches us to see men and women then not as opposite genders, but neighboring genders. Okay? We are sharing in the human experience differently, but we have that common humanity. And insofar as women are treated simply as the opposite of what man is, we will very quickly forget that to bring life into the world or to do things that are distinctly female are actually actions of humanity, not just actions of femaleness. Okay, um, two more. The, third, this, the next uh, paradox we see is um, the individual versus the communal. Okay? It's the idea that God made mankind in his image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He made them. So there is an individual, I standing before you, reflect the image of God. I am fully formed. However, together we are called as image bearers in community to reflect the nature of God into the world. So as a woman, while I am in the image of God, I cannot represent all that God is, okay? And if a man were standing up on the stage, he is fully formed in the image of God, but he cannot represent all that God is in the world in his own gendered body. So the paradox is we must accept in our own sense of self and our community and interaction that we are both individually gendered, but that together as male and female partnering in the world, it is that partnership that reflects the fullness of who God is. And this is a particular danger for us in our society because we are much more inclined to individualism, right? We are much more inclined to parse our biological sex in isolation. So things like this, you can't tell a woman what to do with her body, right? That is fundamentally an argument rooted in individualism. That to be gendered, to be human, is a solitary act. And I think abortion is the crisis point for us because in a woman's body is a community. Your first home, your first experience of the common life of image bearing was in your mother's womb. And so when a woman is pregnant, she is embodying the paradox of the individual and the community. And that's why we have trouble understanding what should be done. I mean, as a larger society, obviously, you know, we have different categories um, presented us in scripture. But the tension is we are both individual, but our bodies and our lives are together in community to do this thing, to fulfill this calling of image bearing. The other error, and you often hear this from conservatives, is to, especially toward women, I don't hear as much toward men, I have to be honest, that your body belongs to the community or your body and your existence and your femaleness should be employed on behalf of a man or on behalf of your family. 
And so whereas in secular society, a woman is being told that her identity is entirely individual, sometimes in conservative spaces, we are reacting to that. And rather than holding to the paradox, we're just reacting in opposition and we're communicating to women that they belong to other people and that their identity and calling only has purpose and significance in terms of their relationships to men, whether they're married, their relationships to children, whether they are mothers. And what we must do is hold both, right? Because I am an individual, but I cannot know myself apart from the relationships that God has placed around me. I do have a responsibility to use my giftedness for the flourishing of my community, including my biological giftedness, should God call me to use it in that way. And so living in the fullness of male and femaleness in this respect as an individual and part of a community is recognizing that there are certain callings in the stewardship of our body that God calls us to so that we serve each other well, but other people are not who we belong to, right? And ultimately, this kind of interdependence between the individual and the community is for the goal of union. It's so that like puzzle pieces, we would link up with each other and exist in union and interdependence. So these are the kinds of categories that you must bring to these conversations. And a lot of time the conversation is uncoupling the paradox and it is driving after one answer. And it is building entire systems and entire applications based on only half of the paradox. And what we must do as we move into the actual application of different principles is say, are we holding to both sides of the paradox? Are we honoring both truths about our maleness and femaleness? But I think there's one other paradox that complicates this, and this is why we are here today. Because you don't go very far in Genesis. You get to Genesis 3, and you encounter the fall. And you encounter man and woman in their biological sex, in their embodiment, living in brokenness. And you see in the expression of the curse in Genesis 3.16, you see how their very physicality has become uncoupled from each other and how it has been set at odds with each other and how the way they have been made now presents temptations and challenges and stumbling blocks. And so we live in this space of brokenness but in Genesis 3, you also see that their biological sex is going to be used by God to overcome the brokenness. It is the seed of the woman that is going to turn everything right again. And so even though we come to these passages and we see very clearly the brokenness that we live in, and we know these tensions and we feel them, and this world is so hard to live in our embodied, our embodied selves. We also have hope that God is intending to use our maleness and femaleness as part of his plan to redeem the world. 
And so what this means, if we're to hold to this paradox, the paradox of the already not yet, the paradox of the right now, the paradox of living in brokenness and yet hoping for redemption and moving toward redemption in the brokenness, there are two cultural errors that we could succumb to if we don't hold the paradox well. And the first is naivete and a rejection of the challenges and a dismissal of them to say, you know, you just need to do the right thing. If you just make the right choices, if you just fulfill this definition of manhood, or if you just fulfill this definition of womanhood, everything will go back to what it should have been in the garden. And we spend a lot of time doing that, don't we? We spend a lot of time trying to get back to Eden. But the problem is to do that is to bypass the gospel. To do that is to bypass the seed of the woman who is going to restore the brokenness. And so if our approach to living in the already not yet is just to adopt legalistic forms, that is a form of naivete about how profoundly broken we are. And that the only thing that will heal us is Christ. On the other hand, we can be so captivated by the brokenness that we fall into hopelessness. And I see this in more progressive spaces. This is the energy behind Down with the Patriarchy. There is an anxiety and a fearfulness and a hopelessness that the world is never going to be okay for women. And so we must fight and fight and fight and fight and fight because that's the only way we could ever potentially achieve the vision. But you do that long enough and you get exhausted and you get cynical and you get jaded and you get hopeless because the only thing that can restore us, the only thing that can cause us to live as men and women in God's image is the gospel. It is Christ. So I think if we're going to hold this paradox of living in our brokenness and yet looking for redemption, we must believe this. God is actively redeeming and restoring his creation, including men and women who bear his image. And yet, we are still in process. We are bearing the weight of brokenness. We are not yet what we were made to be, but one day by his grace we will be. So you should not be surprised when brokenness touches gender. You should not be surprised when sin comes into the church in very embodied ways. Okay, But you also should not be surprised when your biggest ally in the kingdom is a brother or a sister. That God is redeeming not only our experience of our biological sex, but he is using our differences as men and women to bring about redemption. And that's a hard paradox to live in, but it is the only one that is going to guide us through these conversations successfully. And it is the only one that is going to give us clarity when we come to the church, we begin to ask questions, okay, what would it look like to be men and women working together to bring redemption to the world through the gospel? And we will do that next session.
know we took a lot of time at the beginning to kind of set up the conversation. I told you nice stories about my life and we talked about the need to think differently. So in this, it's going to go a lot faster. Don't worry. Um, we're going to take all the uh, paradoxes that I gave you and we're going to go right into what does this mean in terms of our practice and how we live life in community. But the first thing I do want to draw your attention to again is while I showed you these paradoxes in the creation of the world, we looked at it in terms of the foundational concepts of our anthropology and the way God has made the world to work. These truths replicate themselves throughout the scripture and throughout human existence. And so what I want to give you I gave you the, the concept of paradox, and now I want to talk about um, self-similar shapes, okay, or fractals. Let's get um, this up, where the larger shape is made up of the same shape, right? So this is kind of a phenomenon. I don't get this entirely, so don't ask me too many questions about it. But we see that the larger paradigm and pattern is giving shape to the whole. Right, and this this is another one I like a little bit better. This next one, um, the the fern. Okay, if you look carefully, you'll see it self-replicating, and at each little point is the shape of the larger fern. Okay, so when we come to the scripture, these paradoxes that I'm giving you that we have gleaned from Genesis one, two, and three, are the larger shape of the way we th the scripture is thinking. And so you can carry this shape into the rest of the scripture. And it comes very clearly up in the New Testament, even when we get to um, the kinds of ways that the church is supposed to work in the world, the way we are to live as brothers and sisters. And so if you think about the first session, perhaps as first principles, we're trying here to take those same conversations and press into them a little bit more and say, how would this um, show up not only in society, but in our interactions, practical lived interactions? So if you know um, kind of the shape of some of the Apostle Paul's epistles, how the first half is kind of teaching and the second half is application, the first half is orthodoxy and then orthopraxy. I am convinced. And people will argue with me and tell me I'm not right, but I'm an eight, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I am convinced that when we see gaps in our flourishing, when we see gaps in our practice, it's because there's a gap in our teaching, that there is something we are misunderstanding or we are not formulating right. I know a lot of people will say, well, we don't always practice what we preach, and there's this kind of inherent hypocrisy in human beings where we say one thing and do another. I think so, but I am more inclined towards saying, no, we actually didn't believe or conceptualize something correctly. That our practice reveals what's wrong with our belief. And so I think these things are very, very linked. I think there is an organic relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And by the time we are working things out, we really should be asking ourselves not what needs to change, but why do we do that? What are we misunderstanding? What part of the paradox are we not holding to? What truth is not present in our practice? Because sometimes it can just be an absence. 
If paradox is one of the key ways that the Bible approaches not just this conversation but faith, it's very possible that our practice has gotten off not because we're believing something, you know, we're, there is something we believe that's true, but we have not believed the other truth equally. And so sometimes it's just a question of what's missing. What have we not believed that we should have believed? So let's just jump right in. Um, the first paradox that we looked at, again, just as a way of reminder, is that we are created beings submitted to the authority of the transcendent God while we have been called to exercise, rule, and spread his dominion over the creation. So we exist in this place as human beings, as male and female human beings, both under authority and exercising his authority. What's fascinating about the, uh, the way the text describes uh, the creation of the first man with the spirit coming into him is exactly the way the New Testament describes our conversion, being made alive by the spirit of God. And so there is this fascinating practice that we see, or this, this, this parallelism, um, I think specifically if you think of Acts 2, right? When the, the Holy Spirit descends on the church at Pentecost. Listen to how Acts describes what happens there. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is actually um, Peter um, preaching and explaining what had happened in, Pentecost, at, at, in the upper room. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Even my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so we have this passage that has the same elements as we see in, in Genesis 2. We see male and female, sons and daughters of God, being made alive and equipped for their vocations by the spirit of God coming into them. Okay? And what's fascinating is just as in Genesis 1 and 2, the making of the image bearer, the form of the image bearer as male and female, as immaterial material, as being breathed, the breath of life being breathed into him, is connected to his vocation, right? So the vocation of the image bearer as it's presented in Genesis 1 is the creation mandate that they would exercise by their maleness and femaleness. They would bring forth life into the world, replicating themselves in image bearers, other image bearers, extending the rule and reign and glory of God through the whole earth. In the New Testament, we see this same thing being expressed in Acts 1.8, right? The form and function, the spirit descends. Before that happens, Jesus says to them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And of course, the parallel passage to that is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the second Adam. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always. So the vocation of the image bearer brought 
to life by the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 is through their maleness and femaleness to bring life into the world to extend the glory and the reign of God through the whole earth. We see the exact same thing happening in the New Testament. That male and female sons and daughters of God are brought to life by the Spirit of God and then commissioned to replicate themselves in other image bearers through the whole earth for the glory of God. We see the second Adam partnering with his bride to do this work. And so it's not just this fractal of the individual image bearers and you partnering with your brothers and sisters. It is this cosmic shape of the second Adam doing what the first Adam did not do. And it is the second Adam coming with his bride to accomplish the work and establish the household of God. So what are the implications of this? Right? That's the paradox. The creature is made alive, is brought to life by the creator and commissioned to extend his rule and his authority to represent and act as a co-region over the earth. That is what is happening in the church. That is what is happening for us spiritually as well. What are the implications? I think the, the most obvious implication to me is that both male and female have the responsibility but also the authority to partner together to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Both male and female are to reproduce themselves in new image bearers for the glory of God. The work of spiritual fatherhood and motherhood is to bring life into the world through the church and then to raise up the young to maturity in Christ so that we would look like our God. We would fulfill our vocation as image bearers. I think if this is the goal, if this is what this paradox teaches us, then we have to ask, how are we doing in that respect in our systems? Okay. Do we actually disciple both men and women toward this goal? And I think culturally, at least within the conservative church, I think I, I have heard things like, well, it is the work of men and women support this vision. So men are called to the evangelization and discipleship and women support them doing that. Now, that's you may say, I've never heard that, and I'm glad for you that you never have. But it is a prevailing thought. Um, what we must do as we look at our systems is say, do we see the mission of the church as a shared mission between men and women? And if we do... Are we equipping women to this work? Because the sad reality, and I don't think I'm telling the women anything in this room, the brothers, the sad reality for a lot of women's discipleship is that they are not being equipped to this work. They are being equipped for perhaps domestic roles. They may be equipped to inspiration, to private, personal kind of spirituality. I do not hear women being tasked with this responsibility. This is not the way we think in terms of 
um, equipping them even within the church. And so I think, especially as conservatives, we have to make sure that when we're looking at our discipleship and our mission as a body, that we believe this paradox, that both men and women are called to partner together for the glory of God to spread his gospel through the whole earth that that is a partnering, and that we are both responsible for that. All right, the second paradox we looked at was um, the paradox of being both material and immaterial beings. And this actually falls very closely on this conversation about discipleship. Because the first is a question of what is the vocation of the human being? What is the vocation of the follower of Christ? And regardless of whether you're male and female, your vocation is to bring new life into the world that looks like Christ and spread his glory through the earth. That is the shared vocation of men and women. On the heels of that question then is what would it look like to be a mature person doing that? What would be the goal of our discipleship? If, if that is the end... Okay, if that is the vocation that we are moving people toward, what would, how would it look like to respect both the physicality and the spirituality of the individual human being, whether it's male or female, in context of actually maturing them to be able to be spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers? And, and what you find very quickly is, again, we're trying to uncouple this paradox. And, and what's fascinating about this paradox is it reveals what we believe a mature human being looks like. That is what discipleship is, right? It is the maturation of the human being into their full embodiment of an image bearer looking like Christ. Now, we use the language of sanctification, and we use the language of Christ-likeness, but it's essentially the same. It is the holistic redemption of the person so that they would represent and reflect God's nature. The problem is when you actually get into the process and look at how we're discipling people, you realize that we're not holding to the paradox of both material and immaterial. Okay? What I have seen is movements, traditions, churches that when it comes to discipling women, and, and it happens for men too. I, I'm only speaking out of a focus particularly on womanhood. But, but this is something that happens for both of us because we are partnered. Churches that believe men and women's primary calling is physical or biological will equip and disciple men and women to fulfill their physical and biological roles. And so a lot of their teaching will be focused on things like home life or parenting or um, the... And you see this even with some churches where instead of seeing the church as the household of God, the church is made up of smaller nuclear families. And they're actually building their vision and practice out of this family, nuclear family-centric vision. Churches that, see, that approach discipleship this way are going to be very hard places for single people to find a place, very hard places for um, divorced people to find a place in the household of God. 
Anyone that varies from that kind of fulfillment of your biological maleness and femaleness in families is going to struggle to find a place in connectedness if that is your vision for maturation as a Christian. On the other hand, some churches are so focused on the spirituality of the human identity that everything is about your mission and your radicalness and what you're giving up and where you're going to move and how you're going to save the world. And that kind of energy, while it is a true energy, is at odds with the limitations of our bodies, right? This, that tension is the question that in previous generations, people would struggle for the call of the mission field and leave their children hundreds of miles away so they could fulfill their spiritual work, not understanding that their children were their spiritual work. So when we want to honor the paradox of our gendered lives and our, our humanity being both material and immaterial, what we're looking at is a form of discipleship that sees the human being as a whole person and gives attention to their physical lives and to their spiritual lives and does not reject one for the other. And it's very hard to do this. I mean, this is why people don't do it well because we do want to just split the paradox and go one way or another. But what we must accept is that the gospel has implications on our lived reality, our embodied reality. There is a call on our physical bodies through the gospel to the people that God has given us in community with, whether that's our families or within our church communities. We are to live certain ways with them physically because we are embodied people. But there is also a call on our spiritual lives. And... One of the reasons I'm standing here in front of you instead of being home with my family this weekend is because we are trying to walk this paradox. We are trying to say, God has given Hannah, mommy, certain callings and ministry. And our family must, insofar as we can, support and enable that for the flourishing of the broader church. But... As soon as I can, I am back home with them. And it's this tension that we, we feel torn by. I feel torn by. And it's because I'm trying to live in a paradox. And that's exactly where I'm supposed to be living. It would be very easy for me to say, I don't have to do this work because I have children. And I don't want to leave them. And there are people who have told me that I should do that that I should not be traveling and I should be. And my family and my husband and my children together have wrestled with this to say, as a family, how are we honoring the gifts that God has given, not just to mommy, but has entrusted to our family and the work that needs to be done in the kingdom. So that's the kind of paradox that when we're even thinking about discipleship, we must maintain the holistic vision of the person. We must disciple them in their embodied lives, but we must also disciple them to understand the gifts and equip them to use those gifts that are not necessarily flowing directly out of their 
um, maleness or femaleness. The third paradox that we looked at, again, was the question that human beings are made same but different, that we share a common humanity, and yet we live in the world in male, female bodies, that we are navigating the world in very specific ways. Now, one of my favorite kind of New, Pas New Testament texts that deals with this is in 1 Peter 3, 7. And I think within this text, you see this paradox represented. You see both features of the sameness of our shared humanity and the difference between our maleness and femaleness. Now, this is specifically in context of husbands and wives. And that's a whole other conversation about the difference between being female and being a wife and being male and being a husband. And those are not synonymous, right? So we just I would just make that rabbit trail of a point that when you're reading in the New Testament and it's talking about married relationships, that is maleness and femaleness in covenant, which is different than this abstract category of maleness and femaleness, okay? So this is specifically in 1 Peter 3, 7, talking about maleness and femaleness and the covenant of husbands and wives. But I do think there's underlying truths that we can discern from this. So, so this is what Peter's, Peter writes. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, just to get things out of the way, weaker vessel, right? We all are on board that that's biological vulnerability, not some kind of spiritual deficiency. Just need to get that out of the way. It's, it's the kind of vulnerability that Jesus alludes to in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he is, he is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing at that time. And the implication is, it's going to be such a horrific time that if you have any physical vulnerability whatsoever, you may not survive. And so that is the reality of female embodiedness, that we are vulnerable in ways that men are not invulnerable in their bodies. So Peter calls husbands to live with wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them because of their womanhood, not in spite of it, right? He's calling them to see them as different from themselves. He's calling husbands to a very imaginative understanding. He's basically saying, guys, get out of your own head. Don't treat your wife as if she were like you. Don't treat your wife as if she were a man. Treat her as the woman she is and understand her womanhood. And so he's calling husbands to, I don't want to say special treatment, of women because that implies that there's inequity but it's a particular treatment that you are to treat women as women because of this shared inheritance listen to what he writes again likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel he's calling men honor the differences since they are heirs with you of the grace of life because you share the same inheritance, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
you are co-heirs of the kingdom. You are both husband and wife, he's telling them, and brother and sister. You share the same father. You are going to inherit from the same father. And yet, you are different. And so you must give attention to those differences and not just minimize or neglect them. You must honor them. You must celebrate what God has called good. And I think this happens in reverse as well. We must honor women as women because God has called that good. And we must honor men in their unique giftedness as men because God has called that good. We do not ask each other to become the other thing in order to honor them. And I think the implication of this is we really need to look at our systems and our cultures, not just in the church, but in broader society, and ask, are we trying to ask everyone to behave in the same way? Do our systems and structures ask us to get rid of our differences in order to participate in a certain space. One of the things that I have struggled with um, in this conversation and the way it plays out culturally is, so this is just an interesting thing, and some of the women may know what I'm talking about. There's this kind of woman who is very invested in theology, loves the Bible, loves, maybe she has training, maybe she's been off to seminary, and she's savvy enough to recognize that that's not a classically female presentation in the church, right? And so she moves into a space where theology as a culture is the purview of men. And she, she knows that she is an intellectual woman and she knows that she loves theology and these things fire her up. And so she does this unintentionally. I'm not like other women. I like to have conversations with men. Oh, women are so emotional. And this woman is caught between what she has been given a vision of her womanhood and theology, and her culture has told her these things aren't compatible. And so what should she do? She rejects her womanhood. And she defines herself as a different kind of woman, right? I don't like flowery things. I don't buy pink Bibles. I'm not that kind of Christian woman. I like theology. And I'm like, get your nails done and have a conversation about theology. I did. I got my nails done before I came here. And one of the things I feel like I'm called to recover is that this is not a gendered conversation, and I will give up none of my womanhood to stand up here and talk about this. And I think what we must honor in our spaces is we must ask ourselves, are we asking people to become less female or less male to participate in certain spaces? Or are we honoring that they are fully formed people who just happen to like theology? Or they are fully formed men who just happen to really like to work in children's ministry? Okay? And, and what we also look at in broader society is what are the ways that women are being asked to give up the things that make them unique so they can be successful in the marketplace. Like one of my core passions is 
sharing with women that the marketplace is a male-shaped space. And it's going to ask you to become a man to succeed. It's going to ask you to be more aggressive, more competitive-driven. It's going to ask you to have a singular focus. And it's going to say, if you do those things, you will be rewarded with success. And I'm asking women, maintain the things that are true to you that God has given to you. And if the marketplace can't see it and they won't reward it, you know that God is going to reward it. And the very thing that you bring to the table is the thing that is missing. And if you leave it because the culture around you is telling you to become more like a man, that culture will lose the very thing that they need from you. And the same within the church. All right. Uh, the fourth paradox is the concept of the individual and the communal. And again, this is a similar kind of flowing out of this question of our maleness and femaleness, our individual experience. And I think the, the practical ways and kind of the application of this is exactly what I expressed earlier, that my womanhood and my individual gifting are not at odds with each other that there is the temptation when we begin to talk in terms of maleness and femaleness to take the individual and put them in the greater class, right, the greater category. So we say, here are the sociological kind of propensities of women. Therefore, you are a woman. You need to do the things that are sociologically what women do. And I don't mean just like our roles, but I mean like the way women move through the world. Again, I'm an eight. I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't think it's that big. Like, Brandon said, oh, she's fearless. And I'm like, I don't think so, because this is just the way I am. And maybe foolhardy, perhaps, not fearless. But what the struggle is for the individual, whether you're a man or a woman, is this tension between the class and the individual, right? And we even see this in the identity politics um, kind of conversations in larger society. How much does your class define you and how much does your individual identity? Both, right? Both. We are both individually gifted with a whole array of which our biology is one of the gifts. And we must accept that. We also understand that we part of class kind of movement. And I cannot leave behind all the other women that I am in that class with and set myself out and say, I'm not part of you, right? So there is this tension when we're talking about these things that we don't just talk about men and women as classes, but we also don't forget their individuality. Like, we, we know that these both of these things are true. And the way that I am reconciling this in my own life is the acceptance and the submission to my creator that somehow in his brain he chose to make me a woman he chose to use my body to bring children into the world he chose to gift me with certain curiosity and teaching capacity and he said there that's the package i want right and so i have had to come to understand that all of those parts are essential to the other parts. So I am standing up here as a teacher. I would not be the teacher I am if I were not a mother to my children. 
and I would not be the mother to them that I need to be were I not a teacher. And so when we're coming to this paradox and what we're extending to each other in this space is the freedom to be uniquely, individually created, but also recognizing that being part of a class also means something. My gifts, then, are in service to the community. I don't stand up here rallying about my individualism so that I can enjoy it individually, so that you will accept me and just let me be. My individuality has been given to the community. And so we must preserve the individuality of men and women with their specific makeup of gifts, including their biological gifts, because that's how they're going to best serve a community. That's how the community is going to flourish. Obviously, at this point, you realize that I've completely avoided all of the tricky passages. <laughs> I have opinions about them. I think there is a logic that runs through Scripture about these questions. And so when you finally get to 1 Timothy 2, and you're asking questions about what does it mean to teach with authority, these are all the kinds of things that you need to bring to that. Okay? You will never answer that question if you do not have all of these paradoxes in your kit before you get there. So really what we have been trying to do this morning is to establish ways and patterns of thinking about these more difficult practical questions. And again, as I told you in the first session, the problem is that we exist in these broken spaces. Even if we could get to the point where our brains could wrestle with the paradoxes, right? Even if we could reach a point where we know we have to embrace both truths, and we're trying to live that out, we open our door and we walk out into a world that has is completely broken and doesn't know what to do with that. So even if we want to make sense of it, the world around us is not making sense of it, right? And so, again, this can feel like a hopeless task. It can feel like the challenges are so great that it is very easy then just to resort to roles and regulations to keep us safe. Because, again, paradox is and we want certainty. And so it is very easy in a broken, dangerous world to just say, give me the rules. Because then I can know I can live by those rules and I will be okay. It is also easy, again, to fall into hopelessness, to see the brokenness as the only thing that will ever exist. But because we believe in redemption, because we believe in the gospel, we also believe that God is taking all of these paradoxes, all of the brokenness, and he is reconciling all of this together in Christ. We are not holding the paradoxes together. Christ is holding the paradoxes together. And he is the one standing in the middle of these truths, binding them together in his own nature. And so he is the one holding them in tension. He is the one making sense of them. He is the one bringing shalom to the world. And it is only through him that we make sense of any of this. There's a passage in Hebrews that has become very significant to me in the last 
don't know, two months or so. Um, and I, I feel like kicking myself because I was like, man, I've been working in this conversation for years and I never saw this. Like, I need to go rewrite my book. You know, they're good. They're fine. But this would have been a really good addition. This would have been a really good addition. And it's Hebrews um, 2. And I'd like you to turn there. We're just going to conclude with this. Because I think this passage brings together everything we've been considering this morning. It talks about human vocation. It talks about our call to be image bearers, to have the earth placed under our authority, under our feet. It also talks about the tension, that that's not actually what's happening, that we live in this brokenness, that all, not all things are subjected the way they are to be. And yet, we have hope because Christ is doing this work. I just want to read this um, to you. And I don't know which uh, translation this is, either CSB or ESB. The NIV translates it slightly differently, um, but just follow along. This is verse 5. For he was not subjected to angels, the world to come that we are talking about, but somewhere, someone, I love that, like, somewhere someone has testified. Yeah, that's Psalm, but somewhere someone has testified. What is man? Now, this is mankind. So that's the, the NIV translates that, what is mankind? And then they use the pronouns them and male and female for the rest of the passage because the concept is mankind, humanity. What is mankind that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower the, than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, you left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Now, you may be kind of hearing this thinking, isn't this talking about Jesus? Yes, because he was the full embodiment of our humanity. He is the second Adam. So this is true of him as the prototype of what we were made to be. Okay? But we do see Jesus, verse 9 made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. We do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, that's a Mago Dei vocation right there, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. All the elements are there. Our humanity, our shared humanity as male and female, the brokenness that the world is not yet subjected to the humans as it should be, that Jesus is coming to redeem the brokenness, that he is doing it through his suffering, he is reconciling all things to himself, and through that process, he is delivering fully formed male and female image bearers to the Father, brothers and sisters. And so ultimately, we see that this is what it means to bring sons and daughters to glory. It is 
the glory of God in man fully alive. You know that St. Irenaeus quote, the glory of God is man fully alive and the life of man is the vision of God. So what would it look like for us to be fully formed, fully alive in the glory of God, being brought to the Father as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters? This is what it looks like. This is the definition I'm going to give you. Okay. We, I told you at the beginning that we shouldn't come to the scripture just looking for answers to our questions. What does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman? Well, we've done our work. We've done our homework. So I am ready to give you a definition. All right? Let's get it up there. What does it mean to be a man? A male human using all that he is in his body, mind, soul, and spirit to pursue shalom with God, with himself, with his neighbors, and with creation. That is what these paradoxes lead us to understand what it means to be a man in the image of God. That all of you, your body, your mind, your soul, and spirit, is part of this conversation. That you are pursuing shalom, or the glory of God, being spread through the whole earth. You are seeking to live in interdependence with your with God. You are living at peace with yourself. You are living at peace with your female neighbors. You are exercising rule over creation. This is manhood. Okay? Manhood to be a true man, not to be Ron Swanson, right? Although I do have a affinity to him. Manhood is the the acceptance and embrace of your maleness in your physical, your body, your mind, your soul, and spirit, and using that to pursue peace in the world, to fulfill your vocation as an image bearer. What is womanhood? It's the same thing. It is the same calling. But it is to use your body, your mind, and soul. It is the female human being using all that she is, her body, mind, soul, and spirit, to pursue shalom with God, with herself, with her neighbors, and with creation. Now, do not miss this. This shalom is not the absence of conflict, right? It is not peacekeeping. It is peacemaking. It is what the children of God do. Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become called the sons, daughters, and children of God. That's Imago Dei right there. It is the kind of peace that Jesus used his physical body to earn on the cross. It is the kind of peace that his maleness in his body attained for us through suffering. And it is the kind of peace that we are called to live out in our embodied lives. And those who pursue it will truly be the sons and daughters of God, will truly be male and female in his image. Started, Hannah, and um, you talked about your story, mm-hmm. and I think one of the most fascinating things about this conversation, this is like the number one question we get in our membership classes. Um, when people join the church, they want to know how we're thinking about gender issues, um, and so you talked about your story and how your story kind of shapes the questions you ask. 
So I think what's interesting to me about that is um, oftentimes we like to think that we think independently, that our thinking on gender arises just like independently in a vacuum somewhere. But the reality is all of us are being shaped by these stories that, uh, that we've lived. And so we come to the conversation oftentimes, as you say, bearing questions that other people have given to us to ask maybe not even owning those questions or understanding how we've been shaped. And so as you think about like, so every church tradition, I think you said this, every church tradition, every community, every society, every family has a culture. Oftentimes we're unaware of the stories we've been living and how that shapes how we show up in this conversation. So as you're kind of, um, and I think in some ways maybe people are deconstructing that rather than deconstructing what they might think is like biblical Christianity, they're actually deconstructing their story and the culture that they've come out of. Um, and there's this strong reaction to those that then can kind of create this unraveling that you talked about. And I think particularly for women, I see that. It's like once one little, it's like Jenga. Once one little thing gets shaken, the whole thing kind of collapses. So what kind of cultures or stories do you see impacting how people are showing up? Because I think most churches assume they don't have a culture. Um, and, and then they do. And so families, you know, it's kind of like when you get married, you realize you have a culture when you try to plan your first Christmas. Um, and you realize, oh, like we had a way that we thought was right of doing this. So what kinds of stories do you see people kind of wrestling with, um, that impact how they show up in the conversation? You mentioned marketplace, you mentioned some gender stuff. What, what do you, what do you see? First of all, culture is not a dirty word. And we have been called to specific times and specific societies. And our maleness and femaleness is to be lived out in those spaces. Um, I paint my nails, I curl my hair, and I put makeup on because I live in a certain culture. Now, some people will reject that and say, I don't need to be bound by that. And I say, yeah, but I also don't want people looking at me a certain way. So I adapt to culture. So culture itself is not wrong. Um, I think what we have to be aware of is that there are places where our culture is shaping us and giving us messages that are in contradiction to the scripture. Um, this is a fascinating thing that I think what is really shaping us a lot is American culture and not Christian culture. And here's why I'm going to say this. I have a, a friend um, who was like my kid's piano teacher for a couple of years, and she's Mormon, conservative Mormon. And we would get together, and the thing that was unsettling was how similar our lives were and how similar our practices were as families and how similar our expectations for what the good life looked like. Now, if you know Mormon theology, that should not be the case. An evangelical or an Orthodox Christian and a Mormon should not have the same vision of the good life. And yet we did as women. And so for me, I had to ask the question, why do we end up with similar practices as families? What is informing us? And what I think was informing us more was that we were religious women in American culture, okay? And the values of establishment American culture were, were pushing on our religion and our practices in a certain way, and it, it was emerging in similar fashion. Now, we had different religious practices, right? So she would go to the Mormon temple. She had her marriage sealed. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. Like, she and her husband are going to be married for eternity. 
And I was like, oh, honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I love my husband. And by God's grace, we will make it through this life together. <laughs> I'm not signing up for eternal marriage. But what was shaping us was American culture more. And so as that becomes clear, you begin to ask yourself, well, how much of this is just the culture and society have been called to, right? And there, there's not anything wrong with it. God sovereignly placed me here. And how much am I confusing the culture around me with my Christianity and the Bible? And I think a lot of us are shaping our gender roles and our dynamics by sociology more than theology. And so we're asking questions, well, should the woman be at home? Um, that doesn't make sense. Like, that just isn't a question. Like, as people, as mature people, we're supposed to be caring for our family. But in my community, that's a working class community, a woman cares for her family by earning money so they can eat. And she does that in the marketplace. So I think the biggest thing that's shaping us is American culture, and I think it is consumption culture. I think it is our culture of racism. Is this being recorded? Um, yeah. I think it should be, because I want to say okay, it. <laughs> I was going to say, when have you ever worried about that? Like, uh, no, no, you, you just need I more fuel to, OK. You do not, we do not understand how much of Christ, white Christian womanhood is built on a history of slavery. And here's, I see people shaking their heads, and this is what I'm saying. I'll give you a story, all right? The ways that women are expected to be society matrons presume that someone else is doing their domestic work. Okay. A, a woman who's with a mentor of mine who's pastor's wife, her husband grew up in um, the South, and she grew up in Indiana, and they got married, and they entered ministry. And he's like, honey, I need you to be present more in the ministry. I need you to do these other things. She said to him, I'm raising children. I'm keeping the home. I said, but my mother never had to do that. My mother was always present in greater society. And she said, your mother had African-American help. It's not just slavery, right? It is the formulation of what we believe women are to be, and we pass that along generationally. And I grew up in the North, right? But I live in the South, and so I'm very complicated on this because my husband's like Virginian, which you're not even Southern, you're Virginian, <laughs> which precludes everything. And I don't want to make this just like everything is explained by race, right? But our understanding of where we fit into society and the kinds of things that we say you should be as a woman are very different for white women than for African American women vastly different and it is you come talk to me afterwards i want to have this conversation with you this is really important because i, I understand resistance to this i also understand that i live and breathe white women culture all right there's a lot built into american culture that we are blind to that is shaping how we move through gender Do you want to, can you speak a little bit to the unraveling 
you mentioned that yeah. word. I think that's a good way to put it. And, and not just for, I think we're in a moment where people feel like everything's being deconstructed. And it's happened so rapidly in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, I don't think anybody could have maybe imagined how far we would leap right. on some of the things that were normal, particularly if you're probably in your 40s and 50s, you're living these, I'm almost, I mean, 40 next year, like you're living these dual realities of having grown up in one and, and then something totally different, especially probably the last four years. Um, how, how do you see that pain being, that unraveling happening, not just for women, but also for men? Because everybody's kind of suffering from this trauma. And um, I think rightly so, we're, we're focusing on how women have experienced that, but also a lot of men right. feel trapped. They feel paralyzed. They feel like, I don't, I don't know what to say. What are the rules of engagement? If I say this, am I going to get in trouble? You know, just there's a, there's a cynicism and a hopelessness for both genders in this. So how do you see that? unraveling impacting men and women? So um, there's a personal unraveling where if a person has invested themselves in rules and structures, both progressive or conservative, and they have said, these things will bring me the good life, these things will keep me safe. If I conform to these expectations, then I will be delivered safely home, right? And then life happens. And so you pull one of those threads or you, you knock the Jenga block, and it happens for both men and women. And it happens both for conservatives and progressives. And so there's a personal fragmentation and a personal unraveling if you build your identity in gender rather than building it in this larger vocation of Imago Dei. Because even if all of the gender and biological sex categories fall apart, <coughs> you still have your calling as a daughter of God or a son of God. This is fascinating. You only are guaranteed the calling of daughter or son. You are not guaranteed husband, wife, aunt, uncle, grandparent. You're not guaranteed anything. If you exist, you are a daughter or a son of God. Um, so there's a personal fragmentation and unraveling. There is a societal fragmentation and unraveling. This is an okay boomer moment, okay? <laughs> We are living in the collapse of the sexual revolution. We are inheriting the choices that were made in the 50s and 60s, and it's only now come to fruition. And so it feels like a rapid fragmentation. But what's actually happening is our uncoupling of sexuality from community, our uncoupling of um, our relationships as men and women in the bonds of covenant and the safety of marriage has now reached me too, right? It has now reached this massive social fragmentation. If we believe, as I do, family, male and female, being fruitful and multiplying as a social building block is part of what stabilizes larger cultures and communities and societies. If we believe that's bound up in rule and reign, as the creation mandate tells us it is, when you kick that out, your rule and reign is not going to work, right? You're not going to be able to build society. And so the fragmentation, even the tribalism that we're feeling. Now, my, my husband laughs at me because he's like, Hannah, you trace everything to the sexual revolution. And I'm like, yes, I do. Because it's right. <laughs> But I do believe 
that because of the way God created communities to work, are giving attention to our maleness and femaleness and the call of safe partnering in community formation. You cannot build society without family. And, and really, free sex is a rejection of the bonds of family. So, there you go. And how do you think that impacts men? I, I, you talked a oh, lot about yeah, women yeah, throughout, yeah. but I'm just yeah, curious. Yeah. I know that was, that was a question that was asked here, but I've, I have that. I have all of the unpopular opinions, okay? I'll just give them to you because I'm going back home to my family and I don't really care. <laughs> Those are the people uh, I care about. What I see in my working class community is um, this is affecting men this way. It, we did men no favors when we told them they didn't have to be faithful to the women they had sex with. We did men no favors when we told them they could create children and not bind themselves to the children they created. And so men are now suffering as much as women, like we see the suffering in women, we see single motherhood, we see fragmentation, we see the struggle of women who are not partnered with men who are helping them bring life into the world and exercise dominion over the creation. But we also see these men in isolation. And what is fascinating is it has affected their sense of vocation and calling. And so I see communities in the white working class community of large groups of men who are directionless. And they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing in the world. And part of that is because we have this passion culture for vocation. Go find your passion. These are guys who are like, well, I'm not going on to college. I, I may get training vocationally, but the job market's tough. These are communities that are fragmenting. What they need is to be bound to a woman and children. What they need is the responsibility, because that is so clarifying. It is so clarifying when you realize my vocation and my work exists to create community. It does not exist in isolation. And given our biological realities, men are individualists, right? I'm like physically, they are not the ones who carry children. They are naturally inclined to individualism and isolation as a gifting, but also as a weakness. Women are the ones who actually create community in their bodies and then are, end up with the community of family around them. So I think this has harmed men because it's uncoupled them from the women that would help them build community together. So I do see there to be severe harm to men who were told they could have free sex and didn't have to use their manhood on the behalf of women and children. I like that you're not in mm -hmm. Well, I was gonna say, thinking about both of those questions combined, I think too, we see its effect then within the church and ministry because as followers of Christ, we've had this reaction to the sexual revolution. We've wanted to so protect, um, we've wanted to so protect ourselves and each other, right, from from falling, from sexual impurity, from um, from not honoring God, that we created, we have created some rules and structures of how are we going to interact with each other as male and female, and what has happened then is often females within the church don't have the same access to um, to advice, counseling, teaching, even the sense of community 
and that's birthed out of this wanting to be cautious. So like, for example, if a group of guys walk in and there's, you know, a, a male elder, they might be like, hey, come here, give me a hug, you know. And a woman comes in, it's more like, oh, good morning. <laughs> and, and that's a different feel. Yeah, the sad hug, the classic sad hug. Yeah, it's a different feel of community. Um, <laughs> hey, seriously, can I just push pause here? This is like the great tension every week as a pastor is... I noticed that, like, I will go to shake a man's hand, and let's say he's married. Then the wife, it's like we do this, like, unspoken dance. Is she going <laughs> to stick out her hand or not? Does she for want... Or, or it, all you're worried about is a handshake? Yes. I mean, this is... It's the Midwest. Come on. Like, we're not in the South, you know? But, like, it's... Do it's you... Fist, do you, you is this, the fist bump? Is it the handshake? Is it, is, it, is it a hug? Do you have people who've experienced trauma who a hug would be right. threatening? Right. I mean, those kinds of things, like that just basic, we don't even have like a social contract for like how we greet each other. And I'm always sensitive to try to stick out my hand and then I get dissed a lot. You know, women just kind of walk by me, whatever, you know, or a man walks by me, you know, but it's, it is kind of like, what, do you, what are the rules? Like, how do you engage? And like, even as a man, you're always, if you're even have an ounce of self-awareness, you're trying to ask those questions and do that dance in a way that honors, but is fraught with difficulty. Sorry. I mean, you, I think you pointed that out. That's like a real issue. But also, like, the Bible is telling us to greet each other with a holy kiss. So, like, some of this is just cultural. Yeah. Our own discomfort with our bodies. I do think abuse is a very important category to be cognizant of. And I think asking permission is a simple way to handle that. I'll ask you, are you a hugger? Like, no, not really. Well, it's okay. Can I give you a hug? Um, I know that this is a difficult thing, but, but I come from, like, we're living in Virginia in the South right now, and so there's lots of hugs that go around, you know. <laughs> Some of them, like, <laughs> there's a lot of old men in my church that like to hug me. <laughs> we used to have a saying in the Southern church, if, you, if her feet leave the ground, it's probably inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was so just... So this is what I do, knowing that. And also, I'm a 40-year-old woman, right? and I feel very secure with my husband there and my children there. I will be the one to initiate, and I say... Can I give you a hug? Or I put out my hand in contact. I think physical contact is really important because we are embodied people. It is culturally difficult, but I do think we All right, I want to circle back now. You were finishing saying just the access to resources and the ways that we engage, being aware of how there can be gaps yes. right, right. in the church mm -hmm. and how we approach that. Right. So I think that a lot of that comes out of the, uh, mm -hmm. it's our reaction to the sexual revolution, to all, uh, and it's kind of the Billy Graham rules of engagement between genders, but it makes it difficult if there's a woman that's like, oh, I just need counsel from you as my pastor, and I need to figure out now when can we be sure that we have another woman present to be, and I'm not saying those rules are bad, and I appreciate a lot of them. I just think it complicates access for females, it, and it, it makes it different than access that males have. So one of the questions we actually got was about that um, somebody had served on staff at Willow Creek, and obviously we, we know living this close to Chicago about what happened with the implosion of leadership there with, with uh, that team of Bill Hybels. What are, what are some of the opportunities and pitfalls in leaning into this partnership where 
uh, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to be hopeless. You know, you kind of gave us those categories. But as we seek to kind of transcend these legalistic rules, the Pence rule, the Billy Graham rule, these kinds of things, we also need to be aware that there's brokenness still there, right? And so how do we, what are some of the things that, what some of the pitfalls and opportunities that we need to be aware of? So I think the first thing that you have to be aware of is progressives didn't get this right, right? It's very easy for us in conservative spaces to recognize the problems with the Billy Graham rule or something, like the, not the practice, but like the assumptions that are underneath it, like you're talking about. And then you'd be like, oh, well, we got it wrong, so we're just going to do whatever progressives did. And what, it's, it's what I said at the beginning, that both conservatives and progressives are being shaped by the same sociological context, and they're carrying in the same flaws into their thinking. It's just being exhibited differently. So I, I do, and, and one thing I'm very concerned about as we move forward, we must move forward, but we must understand that we're going to move forward with a lot of brokenness and a lot of a lack of clarity about how we're supposed to relate to each other as male and female. And so what I think we must do is be very self-aware, right? Don't worry about what the other person is doing worry about what's going on inside of you. So I think in a lot of times, like the Billy Graham rule is actually a way to opt out of dealing with your own stuff. And what you have to understand is like, people don't fall into inappropriate relationships just because they're around each other. They go to inappropriate relationships because they have a lack of wholeness and they have pain and they have pressures and they have unresolved questions and difficulties that they see that relationship as going to heal for them. And so I've seen this a lot with women where they're under the pain of maybe a difficult marriage or is not being understood or seen and somebody out there sees them, right? And suddenly that relationship became, becomes life and health and peace for them. And when I counsel women, I'm like, okay, I understand you're longing for this relationship. I understand why it feels vital to your life to have this relationship. I understand the desire. I understand the longing. I understand the pull. I'm not going to tell you that that's not real. What I am going to say is your problem isn't that you don't have that person in your life or that you need to have a relationship with that person. There is some pain or something that's unhealed inside of you that is longing for that relationship to fix it. So let's get that handled. And so what I think we have to do as we move forward is to be really, really honest with ourselves and our own brokenness and the temptations that we know ourselves to be inclined to and have accountability around that, not accountability around were you with a woman in your office. You know. Paul talks about, I forget where it is, in the epistles about these regulations have no power over the flesh. Right, that's never going to solve your heart issue. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, all of these inappropriate relationships have to do with internal stuff. So we're talking about avoiding avoiding avoidance in a sense, uh, out of fear. Like I, I grew up in circles where it was like they assume every woman is like so attracted to you, you know. And so you've got to be afraid that like you know they're like some temptress 
that that you avoid. I mean, seriously, like that's that's like a maybe that's a southern culture thing. I'd grown up in a church where there's rampant adultery, and I and and actually, ironically, it was the pastors abusing their power, not uh, women trying to be temptresses, that was kind of ignored in that conversation. But we want to avoid a fear-based approach that's that looks at everyone as a threat. And on the other hand, we want to avoid uh, or be cautious uh, about just. Um, running the other way and saying, well, I can do anything. I'm, 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 I'm above that. You know, I could never fall into that. And what we're kind of talking about here, it feels like is the idea in psychology of transference, that we all show up with our kind of heartaches and our hungers, and that we can often transfer those out of our own story and our own pain onto certain positions or onto certain roles. There's kind of a pro- you know, proxy that's happening there that we have to be aware of that Again, like as a pastor, I'm counseling someone in trauma. I know that there's pain there that I have to be aware of how I engage, how I talk, the kind of language I use. I have to be aware of not presenting myself as the solution, right, and really pointing them to Jesus so that there's not a dependency that's created or I don't take on a persona that represents something from their past. You know, like all that's kind of in play. Is yeah. what they're saying there's complex dynamics, but we can't just assume if we tear down all of these you know, kind of uh, traditions and rules that now we're just free to operate as if the new heavens and new, th- new earth are already right. here. We live in the already, not yet. And that means being fully aware of our own sinfulness and brokenness and that it's in play. One of the things I do think about the ways we've handled this in the past is, like I said earlier, it didn't put the spotlight on us. It put the spotlight on other people and just staying away from them as a way to stop from falling into sexual sin. Can you unpack, so one of the, one of the questions, uh, and I had this on my list of questions as well, uh, you talked about uh, the paradox of our humanity is sameness and difference. Can you unpack for us a little bit of what you see in Genesis and throughout the, the narrative arc of Scripture when it comes to what is same, what, is, what does sameness look like in terms of our shared vocation, and then where do you see some of the differences? Because I think we, we tend to highlight the differences, right, in certain movements and at the expense of the sameness. In other movements, we try to uh, do sameness at the expense of difference. So what do you see as some of those essential shared uh, differences? Well, I think, you know, our humanity, what helps this conversation and what is clear in this conversation is that most of us don't know what it means to be human. And we jump to the conversation of what does it mean to be male and what does it mean to be female before we established a really good theological anthropology. There's a reason the American church does not have a good theological anthropology. I'll talk to you later about it. (laughs) And it has to do with the fact that it was not in our best interest to develop a theological anthropology because our systems were so unjust for so long. And so what we lost was this whole category of human identity and vocation before the creator. And if we had developed that and really lived into it, it would have meant we would have had to correct things. So I think we did avoid developing that in the the American church. And so today, when we enter the conversations about maleness and femaleness, we don't enter it with a shared foundational clarity about the Imago Dei. We understand it as life is sacred. We understand the sanctity of life. 
but we don't understand the purposes and the telos of life. Okay, We don't understand the goals and the vocations and the callings of the human person and how that works out in our work, in our relationships, in our families, in society. So we just jumped to male and female, and without that shared sameness, we really do kind of have a difference. However, as we recover theological anthropology, as we begin to build these categories of sharedness in our humanity, that doesn't mean that the differences aren't true or real or valid in our application of our human vocation. So the difficulty for us is to hold to both. And folks say, well, what is the difference between man and woman? I mean, like, just what is it? And I'm like, if you don't know that by now, I don't know what to tell you. Because my children know the difference between man and woman because they're not looking for esoteric answers. They know who their brother is, they know who their sister is, they know who their mother is, they know who their father is. Because they're looking at natural revelation. I think Again, as evangelicals, we do not have a good category of natural revelation. I think that we must be led by our physical bodies to know what it means to be male and female. And if we begin there with natural revelation, pairing with specific revelation, we will have greater clarity on the differences. Here's the problem, though. Natural revelation is not Darwinian evolution. Okay, and what I mean by that is natural revelation, the world around us exists under a curse. And there is this survival for life that social, both Darwinian thought has rightly identified, okay, has rightly said this is the way we survive for life in the world. But survival was never the goal. Thriving and flourishing was. So we're looking at a world that's vastly broken, and it's hard for us to know, am I looking at brokenness, or am I looking at natural revelation? I see that men behave this way naturally, asterisk. Is that natural to the way they were created, or is that natural to their brokenness? And so I am very much a believer in pursuing natural law answers to the differences between men and women, rather than cultural stereotypes. I'm very much a believer in saying something like this. The physicality of a man when it comes to reproduction means that he must actively own the child he creates. He must identify with that child because there's nothing physio physiologically binding him to that child. So part of mature fatherhood is stepping up in the community saying, that's my child, I will take care of it. That doesn't happen for women. Nobody in the birthing room asks the mother, ask who the mother is. They ask who the father is. They do not ask who the mother is because our physiology, the natural revelation of our bodies, is clear who the mother is. And that's kind of an example of what I mean. Like, you have to start there. But there are different callings on men and women because their bodies are different. So it is the call of men to uniquely stand up and claim their offspring. That's what it means to be a father. That's why we call God Father, right? Because he claimed his offspring. He made us in his image as his children and did not abandon us and came to us in our brokenness to redeem us. 
That's why he's our father. That motherhood cannot explain that about God, which is why he does not reveal himself as mother, because there is something very specific he is doing that is embodied in maleness that can only happen in the male body. That's just an example of how I believe natural law has to lead this conversation forward. But we have to be careful that we are actually looking at the physicality of the way God has created us and not the way the world is broken or the propensities for us to take advantage of what is our embodiment. Because society will also say, well, men weren't made to be monogamous, right? They're trying to make a natural law argument that it's okay for men not to covenant to women and the children. But that's not. That's the brokenness of men. It is the brokenness of men that, yes, they were made to be in covenant, but it's really hard to do. So, okay, law. so just uh, bringing it back to the original question. Uh, no, I mean, I, mean, I know. I, I, Hannah point, always gives context. Says, yeah. Down here. Uh, yeah, down so. Here. So thinking, yeah, very like 30 foot, that's good context. So some of the things I've heard you say, we have a shared vocation. Yes. We have a shared work, you know, work. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a shared uh, humanity, mm -hmm. right? So, and then uh, there are distinct differences you talk about with, um, you know, Adam in the garden put there to keep, yes. to guard, right? right. So oh, just, yeah, just tell me that. yeah, well, I, I like listening to wherever you go, so. All right, so let's go back to our bodies, right? I, I referenced earlier that women are uniquely vulnerable because of their physicality, in part because of their reproductive systems. And quite frankly, this doesn't matter if you're married or have children. A woman's body is vulnerable because of her reproductive systems. It exists even if she has not brought children into the world. So women are uniquely vulnerable because of their strengths to carry children in their bodies. Men are uniquely powerful because they don't have to do that. And they are their bodies operate in very individual ways. If they chose, they could abandon the society and they would be fine, right? That's the whole lie of the sexual revolution. What men are called to do then with their physicality in a Christian worldview is to use it on behalf of the weaker. So they have a strength, they have a lack of vulnerability that women do have built into their physicality. And so what men are called to do then is to use their strength to care for the vulnerable. That's headship. There is, male privilege exists and it's not an evil thing, okay? I wanna say this. There are certain ways that men are privileged in the world that have nothing to do with an unjust society. It is just their physicality. They are stronger. They do not carry children in their womb. Because of that, they can go forward faster, right? When Jerusalem falls, they can get out of town and really hope that they're going to survive. <laughs> You're laughing, but it's the truth. Women and children die all the time because they can't get away. The men can get away. A good man called to his full true manhood, the way Christ used his manhood, is to care for his bride, is to care for the weak, to care for the children, care for the vulnerable. So that's what headship is. It is the 
responsibility and the authority that comes with that unique gifting in society. And you are to use that unique gifting and you should not feel bad about it. Like I know that the rhetoric toward men right now is that you should feel guilty for being a white man. You should not, but you should recognize the gifts that have been given to you and use those gifts for the flourishing of the community. I will say to my husband sometimes, when something comes up with the kids or in society, or we have to have someone represent our family in a difficult place outside of our home, and I will look at him and I'll say, this is not my job. This is your job because you're the male and you're the father and you have greater standing in society than I do. And if we're gonna send someone out to represent us, it's going to be you. And so, really, the idea of headship is not difficult because we already know this to be true about everything else in the Christian life, right? It is the sacrifice for the other. It is the strong caring for the weak, justified to our gender dynamics. So, was that what you wanted me yeah. to get at? Hey, I'm not pushing an agenda here. I'm just trying to call out what I've heard you say and, and make it uh, simple, yeah, simple for people who are not in this conversation at a deeper level. You have a privilege that women don't have. Use it for the benefit of the community. Don't feel bad about it. There, there's nothing wrong with that. You have it because of your body. Now, what is wrong is if society says that your body is more important than a woman's body. That's when we're wrong. Because society has not honored women. Our society has not honored what comes to women in their life-bearing capacity. And so the problem isn't that, said, that the society has said men's bodies are important, and men's way of moving through the world is good and not to be honored. It has not honored women's ways of moving through the world. So if we want to correct that, it's not to say to men, you should feel wrong for the society that celebrates your, um, I don't know, whatever it celebrates, your strength, your, um, your singular vision, your aggression, your competitive nature. It is not to say that is wrong, but to say that society must also honor what a woman does that's different than that and give glory to the fact that she's not as competitive as you are, that she is uniquely vulnerable, that she sees things differently, that she brings life into the world, and that makes her inefficient and she's not a good employee because she's got to take time off for her kids. That's where the inequity comes from. So I'd love to hear both of you uh, speak to, this is kind of a little bit of a shift, but just uh, parenting, uh, questions about parenting. How do you, how do you raise, you, Hannah, you have uh, 15 and down. Robin, you've got college down, both boys and girls, sons and daughters. How do you parent towards this? What does it actually look like to have these conversations? Um, knowing those esoteric categories are not there, but they're coming you know, for all of your kids in this kind of, these kind of culture wars, so to speak. Um, how are you parenting them? What are you telling them? What kinds of resources are you using in this conversation? Just what does that look like to be raising uh, up sons and daughters with this holistic vision for male and female creating God's image? I think, um, I think it's taking the things that Hannah's talking about and allowing those to be the teaching points within your household and and also modeling that as husband and wife to your children. So it's really going to the word and seeing 
you know, who does God say we are as his children, as joint heirs to the throne, and, and honoring that as we teach our children, and then how are we uniquely different? And it is not, um, it is not treating every child that they are um, exactly the same. It is honoring that we do have girls and we do have boys, and there are different things that are going to happen for them physiologically, certainly, um, brain development-wise. So, so it's looking at exactly. It's, it's just exactly what Hannah's saying and taking it and transferring it to your children that you honor the the sameness and the uniqueness and are are careful to teach according to those raise your children up according to those truths the truths that's the biggest thing is it's it is like a salmon swimming upstream against culture because we're so preached to by culture about um, about what our children should be, our sons, our daughters, about everything equal. If you even think education system, the way that it's formed, um, and you compare that to you know science on brain development and differences in males and females, it, the, the whole thing is complicated, and so it takes a ton of intentionality and, um, and a lot of regrouping, resetting, and, and it's not easy, I guess is what I want to say. And it's not naturally intuitive unless you've been raised in a way that all of these truths have been spoken repetitively. So it's acknowledging, too, from your family of origin, what kinds of things are you bringing in that feel, um, that are part of your DNA. It's kind of having this awareness of what was I raised believing about maleness and femaleness, and, and is it aligned with God's word, and if not, what kind of adjustments need to happen, and how do we, how do, we do that intentionally um, it, for our children? I'm going to do this fast. This is, going to be, this is going to be a challenge to me. Three things that I have thought in my parenting. One, believe your children are people. Believe that they need everything that you need in their Imago day identity. A lot of times we treat children as like starter packs. Like they'll eventually get to be people. They are people now, and everything you need, they need at their level. Um, the second thing is that um, I tell the truth to my children about the world. So I tell my daughter, as hard as it hurts, the world is set against your flourishing. She is being told she can just take a career path or she's going to do this or, or she sees these like, what is it, the strong YA heroine, right? This, this vision of this strong girl, Katniss has a bean. And I'm like, oh honey, you know, if you were in the Hunger Wars, you'd be the first girl. <laughs> and I don't mean that. You got spunk. But your body is going to limit you, right? So I tell her the truth about her body. I tell her the truth about her limitations because I don't want her to find out in a dark alley someday where she created in her mind that spunk was enough to get her out of that situation. I also tell her that her life path is probably going to be a little harder than her brothers in some respects because the world will set them on a career path and she's got to ask questions about what her body is doing and the world is not going to care about those questions. So I want her to understand the truth about the world. Third thing is, as your children grow, they will be encountering the categories and questions that we are all trying to sort through. Right? Just as confused as we are, our kids are going to be confused by the things they hear about trans identity or sexuality, all of these. It would be very, very easy to just give them answers. My goal with my children is to let them sit in the confusion. Because here's the thing, the world is giving them simplistic answers. 
And when they come back to me with the simplistic answer that the world gave them about human identity, I say, paradox. Well, I don't say that, but I say, that's fine. I get why you think that, and I understand why people think that. But what if we add this idea to it? What if we bring this up? What if we bring this up? By the end of the conversation, she goes, oh, I'm just really confused. That's it. That's where you need to be right now. And we will work toward a more holistic understanding. But I don't want it to be simple, either from the church or from the world, because it's not simple. So I, I want her to wrestle as my child. How do you deal with, and maybe you're going to go here, uh, variation in, like, you talk about paying attention to your body, but, and this was a question that was asked, if we look at our bodies and our physiology, there is some, and I, I don't use this word in, a, like, an ideological way, there is some fluidity. There is a spectrum so that, you know, my own kids, I've got a, one of my, some, 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 some of my kids are strong in ways that maybe aren't associated with uh, being a girl, and some are weaker in ways that aren't associated with being a boy. Uh, even our brain development like shows us there's there's all there's a spectrum. It isn't just binary, right? Like there is uh, people don't fall within these like standard deviations always. So what do you do with that in terms of how you're teaching them as they're paying attention to their bodies, as they're looking to natural law and revelation? How are you dealing with that variety where you you just have these different combinations in kids? And I think some of that creates this gender confusion because we're told this is what a boy looks like. Look at your body. Look at your personality. This is masculine. And then they fall outside of that. And I'd say that's a lot of people at SOMA fall outside of these traditional categories. And then they go, well, maybe I'm not right. this. Right. So how do, you, how do you deal with that in parenting when you're talking to kids about their bodies? And I'll do you one better. You also have to ask a question about intersex people. Obviously, that's been the thing we have not talked about. I'm standing up here saying male and female, male and female. And there is a reality of physiologically intersex people that we cannot act as if those people were not created by God. So in terms of just the variations within the categories of male and femaleness, um, my husband and I do not fit neatly into the established categories for evangelical manhood and womanhood. And what we had to come to terms with was God is our creator, so we submit to him. We wrestle with God about who he has chosen us to be. And I will say to my husband, I would be anyone else if I could. Like, I long to be the quiet pastor's wife. <laughs> I don't know how I can explain this to you other than just believe me. If I were writing the story of my life, I would be tall, elegant, quiet, refined woman who supports the minister husband, whatever. No, that's not God, who God said I was going to be. So a lot of this at first is helping your child deal with they are not their creator and society is not their creator. God is their creator. And I think that even helps with, like my son is on the opposite spectrum and he struggles with that. Like, why did God make my brain to work this way? And coming back to that, we have just told him, look, you don't know, but God did and he has goodness here for us and we can find the goodness. Um, and it's our job as a family to help find the goodness in this. Um, I think we also give children freedom to be who God has made them to be. And we don't ask them to become, we don't fight against God's creation of them because we think we're their creators. Right? It's our job to 
create an environment where they can flourish and become the practice makers. Um, in the particular question about kind of intersex reality, what I started this conversation with is the definition of paradox is that these ways of thinking should elicit two reactions from us. It should elicit humility and curiosity. And so when I think when we come to situations or, or lives that have been given to people that do not fit in the paradox, or they do not fit on either side that we want them to fit in, what is our greatest response is humility and curiosity. And say, I didn't even know this existed. Tell me about, you know, like, what? I, this blows my categories. Yes, it's supposed to. And I think we also need to be careful not to frame it as this is testament of the brokenness of the world, right? Like our bodies exist under a curse, therefore this is a category of it. We don't know that. We don't know. That's the humility to say, I don't know in this moment. And to, you know, we don't go where angels fear to trip, right? So we, we enter these very difficult conversations with humility and curiosity and affirming the humanity of the people involved. And I think as we, not just only with our children, but, you know, with people that are in our communities, in the end, while yes, it is the question is super important about our femaleness or our maleness, the most important question that we have to have right is about our identity in Christ. And until that is that is the foundation. That and so so even with our children, as as we allow them to explore who they are as male and who they are as female, what we want to be sure that we are helping them do is navigate and define who are they as a child of God. What is the truth? Because, because basing their identity on anything else other than that is, uh, will, will eventually result in this Jenga, you know, toppling. And so as we enter into this conversation, I think that's the base is it, it, what, does, what does God say about you and who you are as his beloved, mm. right? And once we have that, then let's enter into this second tier. And so, so certainly for our children, that's when, we, when they leave their house, more than anything, I want them to know that they are deeply loved, chosen, um, created by God. And then let's also talk about the uniqueness and how he created you in your gender. All right, last question. We got like two minutes. Um, so I'll make it quick. I think it can be. Um, so there was a question, and I think this is probably where I would want to just stop and, and say, okay, what's next? Uh, what does it look like? So if you're here and you're like, okay, I, I'm bringing all this brokenness, I have all these hopes, but also disappointment, disillusionment, um, confusion. I mean, there's so much intensity and urgency with this conversation, much heat with this conversation when you come into a space like the church. Um, what does it, what, what would you encourage people in terms of discipleship? So I'm a male or I'm a female and I'm coming in the church wanting to be discipled and to learn this holistic identity, right? We don't want to elevate a particular piece of our identity, whether it's our race or our class or our gender, but at the same time, these things matter because they're, they're how we, they shape how we experience the world and how we experience God and how we experience community. Um, what would your encouragement be just in terms of next steps or um, what, what, what does that discipleship look like when you come into a church um, and, you, and you want that, you know, what, 
what could that look like? What should that look like? Um, for and that, maybe how might that be the same and how might that be different for men and women, um, given the moment that we're in? And in my own personal growth in this conversation, has been to call good what God has called good, and to affirm the things that I feel as pain points in my identity that they are not painful because God has made them painful. God has made them good. Um, and even if the context and the cultures that I've been in have created pain around those, that's not from God. So God says, in your identity, made in my image, your experience, your, your, your womanhood, your manhood, all the things that are about you are good. I also think that you can grieve the brokenness. I think you can take time to identify where your experience of that hasn't been good and verbalize it and say, this is so painful. This tension that I'm experiencing with who God has made me do and who God has called to be good, but the world around me is not called good or the church is not called good. And grieve that. And I would say as well, the intensity of the conversation and the fervency with which it is being debated should not pace your process. Okay, so one of the things about the digital age, everything's going rapid fire. And it's very easy for us to believe that we need to go along with that pace, that we have to get these things solved, or we have to answer these questions because I just have to resolve this tension. And I think one of the greatest things we can testify to in this moment in our social context is the importance of space and time and pausing the conversation and setting it, like removing the power from it by just letting it play out in God's time and letting that growth happen as he's bringing it rather than feeling like, like it is, it's a conversation that feels like you have to do it at warp speed, and if you don't do it now, you'll never have answers. And that's not how God works. He has seasons of growth, he has people he's going to bring into your life. And I would say, have hope that it's going to be resolved. Have hope that you are going to grow and flourish, and that God has good plans for you. That God is, your sanctification and your healing is not up to you, right? God has a plan that he's taking you on, and let it play out. That's just on a personal level. I don't know about social or, you know, like culturally or corporately. I mean, I think as a church, we're, so we're delving into lots of these topics, right? Racial reconciliation, we're talking about gender paradox. Um, certainly, um, I, I think that the conversation is, I know the conversation is going to continue as a church body. It's um, a matter, really, too, of looking around the room and seeing who's here and meeting and talking and in humility, um, acknowledging what we don't know, just continuing to talk with each other um, about these topics and seeking the Lord's face. So um, I, know, I know even kind of organically around the issue of racial reconciliation, prayer groups have, you know, developed. And I, there's, there's um, as God stirs your heart in this, don't wait for an official 
you know, cohort to form, although something like that could happen. Um, but, but certainly just start, start meeting with people and have the conversation. All of Hannah's sharing today is recorded. It'll be made available to everyone. So if you're like, oh, I'd love to talk this through with so-and-so, awesome. Let them listen um, and take time to really delve and think. I really respect and honor that Hannah is saying this doesn't need to be, okay, so, so what are we changing by next week, right? Like, what are the action steps and what's going to look different exactly? Um, this is a process for us as a family, as a church body to go through together, and I think that I think that's important. Yeah, and I think that one of my hopes is that we move beyond, I feel like so much of this conversation when people come into the church is they lay down these litmus tests. If you don't have women elders, if you don't have women on the stage in this kind of way, or if men aren't allowed to do these things, or whatever it is, whatever we're coming with, we all have kind of these, these litmus tests. And I think it's unhelpful because it, it moves us towards some of the wrong questions or some of the second and third order questions might be better. It moves us away from the essential understanding of flourishing. And I think that's what my hope for us is that we see this conversation as what does it look like for us to flourish together? You know, and, and which can then lead to conversations around, like, I, I would love for people to be asking the questions of themselves and of our leadership, where are the gaps in flourishing? How am I not flourishing? How are we not flourishing as a church? And then how do we have those conversations? And what could it look like for us to recenter or reorient towards that flourishing in ways that maybe we, we have, we have thousands of blind spots here. So I know we do. I mean, I, I'm aware of what I'm not even aware of at this point. And I think we are, as, even as elders, deacons, as leaders, we know there are gaps. And so we need people pointing those out, seeing things that we're not seeing. And I think a lot of them actually are not really about, can a woman be a pastor, for instance? I think a lot of them are the thousands of small ways that women, for instance, or men, don't feel seen. They don't feel loved. They don't feel known. They don't feel welcomed into this. I love this idea. This is biblical of the household. This is a family business. This is not a corporation. This is a family business. And, and that implies, as Hannah shared with us last night, I think it's very true, everybody sees themselves as either fathers or mothers or brothers and sisters. And everybody's working in the family business. Everybody's seeking to uh, bring life into the world and multiply life in the world, and everybody's seeking to extend the glory of God out into uh, the spaces that we inhabit. And so my hope for us is that we would kind of locate ourselves in that story and say, okay, I come in as a young person, and I need to, I need to find some spiritual fathers and mothers. And when I say spiritual fathers, I don't just mean the elders. I mean men who are uh, gifted and called and equipped to act like fathers and teach us what it looks like to be true men. And same thing with mothers. I don't necessarily just mean the elders' wives. We're talking about women who are called and gifted and equipped to raise us up to maturity. And, and by the way, sons need to learn from their mothers and daughters need to learn from fathers. And so it's okay to be a brother and sister. There, there can be leadership in that. There can be equipping in that. There can be growth in that. So it's not a, a diminutive term to say, well, you're just a brother or sister. You're just a son or daughter right now. No, like that, that comes with responsibilities and it comes with authority and it comes with uh, all kinds of things, but it does mean that we still have to learn. We don't come in as a 25 year old and demand to be a father. That, that's scary. Um, and some of us that are uh, the age of fathers, 50 and 60 year olds, doesn't mean that you're acting like a father nor you're qualified to be a father. 
right? So it goes, it cuts all kinds of ways, but my hope would be that as disciples, we're all asking these questions and seeking to grow in our holistic understanding together, that we're listening and learning and growing and honoring one another in this conversation and, and not assuming that we have it figured out just because we've experienced a certain kind of thing in the marketplace, just because we've taken a, uh, uh, a gender rights class at IU or two. Uh, and we have a degree in uh, psychology or sociology or whatever, but saying, what does this look like in the household of God according to God's vision for flourishing?